0: That's such a motivational song right there. Return with me to the book of Micah this morning. And against all of my instincts to make this about three sermons, I have uh, condensed my notes and edited it, hopefully for your blessing, into one. So... uh, God willing we'll finish the book of Micah this morning. We are in the chapter 7. I'm gonna look at verses 7 through 20. Before we get started, let's again go before the Lord in prayer. Before a great and holy God, we do come and we bow. And we echo the words of that hymn, Lord, We need no other argument. We need no other plea. Just give us Jesus and Him crucified, buried, and raised again. Lord, bring the Lord Jesus to life in this passage for us. Open it up to us. Shine the light. Give hearing to deaf ears, sight to blind eyes, and life to stony hearts. Lord, revive us, bring us into your grace, your love, and point us to Jesus. In him we pray, amen. Dear diary, everything appears hopeless. I can't trust anyone, not even myself. My enemies are mocking me and my God. If that were all, I could endure. But it gets worse. As I read and hear God's Word, I know that God is angry with me because I am guilty. I am a sinner. Yet despite what I see and hear and feel and experience, I will press on. Without God, there is no hope. But I know without a doubt that there is a God, that He is a just God, that He is a merciful God, and that He has spoken to me personally. To whom else shall I go? He has the words of life. He is my only hope, my only argument my only plea. I wrote that, as it were, as a paraphrase to this last chapter of Micah. It really encompasses what we looked at last time going through verses 7 and 8. And whenever a person keeps a journal or a diary, oftentimes simply what they're doing is recording their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions, their experiences, their their actions throughout the day. And after a time, if someone else were to read that journal, whether that person is is living or dead, um, even if they personally knew that individual, reading over their journal they would eventually gain a a deeper insight an appreciation and an understanding of that person and of what they did and why they did it. And I think that's exactly how, or rather what you and I have experienced going through this book of Micah. It's at least what I have felt and experienced. I have really gotten to know Micah and him personally. We can't talk, but yet he speaks. Um, He's witnessed things similar to things that we have witnessed. He's seen a lot of violence, uh, unjustness, injustice. He's seen a lot of uh, superficial religiosity. He's seen a lot of bribery. Just everything falling to pieces. And he's had very similar reactions to these things, just what you and I have reacted against. Just a, a visceral anger. And and also deep, deep sorrow to see the fabric of society, or even our own families, just falling to pieces. And as we begin to close this book today, I trust that we'll continue to stand in solidarity with Micah, even as he grapples with these, these big issues of life and of death. Well, As we were informed here in the first verse of this book, um, this, at least a portion of this book was written during the reign of Hezekiah. And uh, this was the last of the kings in whom uh, Micah lived and and prophesied and worked. And we don't know to what age Micah lived. We don't know how old he was when he began uh, writing this and how old he was when he died. But I sense a tone of maturity and wisdom in this last chapter. Um, if, if we kind of review the book and recall the, the messages and you re- recall the chapters and the progression of everything, you're going to see Micah starts out just very, very strong. He's full of passion. He's full of drive and, and just righteous indignation. He's he's angry at what at what is going on, what he sees around him, and as and that continues on. But by chapter four and in the center of the book, he moves into more of a of a steady pace with a with a long term view, uh, a view of his world and of his life and and of God's people and of God's working. And here at the close, Micah now, he's coming to, terms, coming to terms with his own mortality, really. And if you will, he's placing all of his eggs in one basket. Any, any reliance that he may have had previously upon, upon his government, upon his family even, upon business, upon his community, maybe he had these reliances in, to some degree or another in, as a younger man, but now they've kind of faded away. And everything is, is all in one, one basket. And, and this is speculative, but, but I can picture an older man, a white-headed man out there, leaning on a staff, looking over his fields, and he's got tears in his eyes. But he's got a smile on his lips too. For It's, actually, it's as if he can actually see the coming devastation. He can actually see... The fields being ripped up, people being killed, the buildings being torn down. And it's as if he can see even his own body being carried away in a coffin to a grave. And all of his hopes, all of his dreams, they aren't crushed. They aren't buried along beside him, but rather they're just on the other side. They're just on the other side. So he sees through tears, but with a smile. And Micah comes to the end of his journal here, to the end of his life in worship. He, he tells to himself those childhood stories that his parents told him, that his grandparents told him. His, his eyes light up as if he recalls going to the barn with his daddy when he was a little boy. And he looks out over the fields and he, and he sees the sheep out there. And perhaps he even reminisces about a story in which he was once told something about a, a snake with a crushed head. But then that thousand yard stare comes. And he's just staring off into nothingness. And his eyes kind of glaze over. With the sins and the sorrows of a lifetime. But that smile returns. He returns quickly, actually. And through tears, Micah laughs at his own name. And he marvels, he marvels at the grace of God. Micah pins this final journal entry in full confidence that these words, these words which he was honored to speak, Which he was privileged to write shall come true. His hope, it lies in the truth, it lies in the love, and it lies in the words recorded for him and for us in the journal of God. I want to read now the entirety of Micah chapter 7. Our verses are going to be 7 through 20. But I want to start in verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first-ripe fig, which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Now their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see His righteousness. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets, It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants, on account of the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth, their ears will be deaf, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob, an unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Well, as Micah picks up his quill one last time, he writes to not only inform others, but to solidify to himself himself once again, of the sufficiency of the Word of God and of the faithful provision of God, he writes, As for me. But as for me. You know, that's a very bold and confident assertion. As for me, it's a definitive statement of determination for me. You know, sometimes we make this assertion from an attitude of pride or arrogance. Not me. Sometimes we, we puff out our chest and strut around like, like Chanticleer, just letting everybody know who we are. I'll never deny you, Lord. Good old Peter. But this statement of Micah is not like that. It's not like that. And neither is the attitude or, or the heart from which Joshua delivered his famous ultimatum, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now these statements are not made from arrogance or pride. They're made from mere men. And men who honestly are trembling a little bit. There's, There's some trepidation here. There's a touch of hesitancy. Yet there's resolve. As for me... There's a decision that's been made. And I think Micah states this just as much for himself as he does as a witness to his friends and to his family and to those around him. And sometimes I think we need to simply just say things out loud. We need to to write them down, to physically write them down in order to clearly define and clarify just who we are, what do we believe, why do we believe it, what is our stance. Let's let's physically say this, physically write this down, because this does a couple things for us. One, it delineates boundaries. It's like a map or a blueprint. It's in black and white. It's written down. It's drawn out. It's sketched out. It's legal. It's binding, uh, and it tells us and it tells others just what our left and our right limits are. We can go to here. To here, you know, the property line runs from from this uh, surveyor's point here up to that oak tree around the bend in the curve. There's there's a wall over here that that is that is uh, built into the hillside to prevent me from falling off the cliff. There's these lines on the road, yellow on the left, white on the right, that tell me. There's danger coming this way and there's danger this way. I need to keep it between the lines. There's the black and white markers on a shooting range. Stay in your lane. Don't shoot your buddy's target. You know, these are your parameters, but within inside these parameters there's freedom. Freedom of movement, freedom of operation. But stay within your lane. I can move, I can operate here and I can travel freely as long as I'm in these bounds. What else does this do? Not only does it delineate boundaries for us, but it offers us a level of accountability. You may argue that, well, you know, everybody knows who I am. Everybody knows what I stand for, what 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 I believe. Well, that may or may not be true. But once you have it written down, once that a definitive statement is made or written or declared, guess what? Now people are watching. Now they're listening. Well, you know, old Johnny told me last week that, uh, that he wasn't going to do that anymore. He, he wasn't going to do that. He did say, "As for me. Well, let me just see how Johnny drives. Let me just see how the, what Johnny does next time he runs in the ditch. I'm going to watch him. Let me just see how old Johnny reacts when his neighbor gets to being annoying again. You know, I do have that sticker on the back of my car. I, I, do, I, do, I am wearing that t-shirt that says something about Jesus or prayer or church. or. You know, I, I do have this Bible verse printed on my business card. Just how am I portraying Christ? Do people see Jesus when they see me? Or is this just a front? Sinclair Ferguson, he um, reminds us that we ought to say to ourselves, I am a baptized man. I am a baptized man. What does that mean? In other words, Christ has saved me. I have publicly confessed him. So let me live like it. So saying these things, writing them down, going through them in your head, thinking through, who am I, what do I believe? They give us boundaries. They give us our limits, and they give us a level of accountability. Well, verses 7 through 10 here, they're very personal verses. Notice the words, the pronouns, I, me, or my. And this teaches us the individual nature of faith and responsibility. It's personal. No one else can believe for you. No one else can do this or that. They can't obey for you or disobey for you. It's very personal. No one is going to answer to God for you. And Micah here, he's reminding himself of this. He's teaching himself of this very truth. He makes some very emphatic statements, just kind of, go through some of these verses here, looking at, I will watch. I will wait. My God will hear me. I fall. I will rise. I dwell. I will bear. I have sinned. He will. I will see. Do you see? It's very, very personal. Remember, Micah's just delivered an extremely unpopular and disheartening message. A message which which forecasts anarchy of distrust of complete family breakdown, um, loss of societal truth, and yet yet he 's confident of something he 's confident but but that confidence that boldness, that determination of Micah even even in the midst of trial in the midst of of uncertainty, um, even even in the midst of his own sin, his confidence and boldness is only because of the person of his God. It's a personal acknowledgement that God is sufficient. It's an acknowledgement of of his dependability, of his immutability. He can't be changed. Of God's ability, he can do whatever he wants. He is all-powerful. It's a reminder that God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. That God will protect him. He will keep him. He will guard him. He's a reminder that God is just and that God is righteous. These personal pronouns, they reveal a personal submission to this supreme God, to this supreme authority. And it's a rejection, it's a rejection of a worldview of nihilism. Of meaninglessness or of hedonism because of who God is, I won't make these moral concessions in exchange for some kickbacks under the table. I won't take this job because it makes sense financially, but it is antithetical to some of God's principles and laws. I won't make excuses for my sin. Because of who God is. He's a righteous God. He is a just God. No, instead, I will wait for God. And if I die in the process, so be it. Though I fall, I will rise. If a man dies, will he live again? Yes, he will. Though I fall, I will rise. Look again here at verse 7. As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah's patience, his confidence in God, his waiting in expectation, isn't waiting in idleness. It's it's not waiting with an attitude of, let go and let God. No. What's Micah doing here? What should waiting look like? Well, just kind of let your eyes peruse through this whole chapter. And, and what we are given here is an example of what waiting looks like. In verse 1, we see he's going into the vineyard to work. He's going into the field to pick and produce and bring home a harvest. Verses 2 through 6, he is exercising discernment in his cultural and societal, his historical moment. In um, verse 7 that we just read, he is looking for and hastening the day of the Lord. Love that verse from, from Peter. That's what he's doing in verse 7. He's looking for the day of the Lord. And, and, he's, and how he is doing that, we see in verses 11, 12, and 13 that he is rejoicing in God's building plans. He's rejoicing in immigration And he's rejoicing, question mark, and sorrowing in the coming topographical changes. In that death must come before life. Verse 7, what's he doing? He's praying, my God will hear me. Which means that he's talking to God. Prayer is talking to God, right kids? He's praying while he's waiting. What's he doing in verse 8? He's walking through enemy territory With his map, his compass, and his night vision. He's got his map. He's got his conscience. And he's got his night vision. The Holy Spirit is like shining a light right here, saying, walk here. This is the ancient path. Walk therein. You know, this is extremely important. Micah isn't sleeping. Remember the story in Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, woe is me, wretched man that I am. I've laid down and taken a nap, and I've lost my my assurance. He's not sleeping. He's not doing business like Lot. He's not sitting in the gate. No, he's walking through enemy territory. He's a sojourner, and he's trying to get to those friendly lines as soon as he can. He's looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. This is important. He's got his map, he's got his compass, and he's got his light. He's reading, he's studying, he's checking out the terrain. Where am I in relation to this topography? Where am I in relation to this drawn map? I'm walking through it. What else is he doing while he's waiting? Verse 9, he's confessing sin and bearing responsibility. He recognizes that it's his fault he's in enemy territory to begin with. Verses 7 through 10, he's preaching to himself. He's speaking truth. He's reminding himself of the promises of God and of God's faithfulness. Verses 11 and following, he's preaching to others, primarily to his his own people. But if you'll notice, beginning in verse 11... There's a pronoun change. It's not simply just personal now. Now it's collective. Sometimes it's our. Sometimes it's we. Sometimes it's they. Sometimes it's you. So he's preaching to others. And then here at the end, 18 through 20, while he's waiting, he's worshiping. He's worshiping. He's praising the Father for His grace, for His mercy, for His compassion. He's exalting the Son who, despising the shame... He trod down that sin. And once he's got it all tightly compacted into a nice neat ball, he got that thing and he cast it. He cast it away into the depths of the sea, into the lake of fire. He's adoring the Spirit who gives truth, who gives love to God's people, those to whom God chose before the foundation of the world. That's what he's doing here while he's waiting. Do you find yourself waiting on God? Good. Stay busy. Do these things while you're waiting on God. And you'll receive an inheritance. Well, in verse 8, we find enemies, uh, excuse me, Micah's enemies rejoicing in his downfall. Rejoicing in his sin. Remember when we talked about that. Schadenfreude, that rejoicing in the pain or displeasure of others. That's what's going on. But Micah, while he's not ignoring or or denying his present sin, his present failures, he doesn't focus on them. He doesn't focus on them. Instead, he focuses on present forgiveness. And Micah is able to do this because of something that hasn't happened yet. You see, Micah fixes his eyes upon a future event, upon a future trial. Do you see that in verse 9? And that's where verse 9 challenges us. Because we're on this side of the historical time divide. And we view the Messiah primarily looking Over our shoulder. We look backwards to him. But Micah is over here. He's looking forwards. He views him straight ahead. So here Micah is telling us. What he believes about the justice. And the mercy of God. He's writing. his, His very confident thoughts. Not only about his personal criminal record, the charges justly laid against him. But, but he is also writing very confident thoughts about his advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. <clears throat> though the cross is revealed in the Old Testament scripture, multiple places, and even though Micah's contemporary Isaiah lays out very, as clear as it it almost can get, Um, I'm not sure that Micah sees a crucified Lord. He sees a triumphant Lord. But then again, maybe he does see the cross. Maybe that's exactly what he sees. Maybe that's exactly what he hears. Maybe he actually hears, Father, forgive them. It is finished. Peter tells us that uh, in regards to the, to the Old Testament prophets and, and Christ, um, and I think we can very easily apply this directly to Micah, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Again, I think this is very much applicable to Micah. It says, "...in this you greatly rejoice." even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, Micah hasn't seen Him, you love Him, And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, The Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This has got to be Micah's testimony right here. He could see him, but he couldn't see him. Trying to figure it out. How is this Christ, this Messiah, going to reveal himself? I want to see it so bad, he says. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. You're writing this for future believers. He's writing this for you, for me. Well, regardless of what Micah did or didn't see or understand regarding his Messiah, this much is true. Micah has full confidence in the need for penal substitution, in a substitutionary atonement. He knows. He knows the law. He's been preaching it. He knows that God is just and demands full compliance to His law. And yet Micah is a confessed lawbreaker. But Micah also knows that God is gracious and that His loving kindness is everlasting. Because Micah knows the person of God he is able then to accurately see the works of God. And in so doing, he sees the demonstration of God's righteousness. And and he's able to mentally connect that intersection, that junction between God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Micah believes in the extension of that future grace of God because of who God is, because what He has done and is doing in giving present and past grace. The scene which Micah presents for us in verses 8 and 9, it's got a couple different metaphors here. Uh, There is this courtroom scene and then there is this one of being led out of darkness. And theologically, what Micah is describing here is the great exchange. That great exchange which was planned before the foundation of the world, which, which occurred historically at the cross, which is contemporarily applied in regeneration and, and declared in justification and will be finalized future in glorification. And yet, there's something else here. There's the implication that although these truths, they they are already fact. They are already yes and amen and done and accomplished. It is finished. There is still an element of that is yet future. And it's that element which we grapple with, that already but not quite yet. We are justified. We are fully sanctified, being sanctified, but will be sanctified. We are holy, but we are being made holy, and we will be holy. There is that tension here. And Micah says that this exchange... This exchange is and will be, it will be so great that even his enemy will see. Even my enemy will see, he says in verse 10. And that change will be so great that their mockery will be turned into shame. Shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? The mocking, the jeering... All of the arrogance coming out of these who would oppose Micah, who would oppose the Lord God, they'll be flattened. It will all come to an end where there was once this cackling, this pride, this this arrogance it's this self-righteousness. No, now there's only silence, silence, and shame. Shame and terror, it says, will then cover the enemy. And yet, not even this, not even their mouths being stopped, not even shame replacing their 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 confidence their overconfidence their self-confidence not even that is great enough to convince them to change their minds or seek repentance for they openly acknowledge where is the lord your god he doesn't they don't say where's my god they say where's the lord your god and it's that same old question where's the rain noah Where's the fire, Elijah? Where's your miracle, Jesus? Come down off that cross. Where's this second coming, believer? It's the same old question. Well, verse ten. Verse ten is God bringing vindication for His children. It's the child of God waiting on His Father to bring vengeance. And refusing to take it themselves. I am the Lord God. I will be vengeful, not you. It's them waiting on God. And verse ten is a it's a visible inversion of status. That finally occurs. The visibility of it. That change of status has already occurred from. From condemned to acquitted. But that's invisible. No, here in God's timing, my enemy will see. They will finally see this status change. But at that time, it will be too late. At that time, she will be trampled down. like mire in the streets, where, where the righteous Micah rose after he fell there in verse 8. Now the wicked will fall, be trampled down into the mud, and never rise again. Their day's over. And here's a quick illustration. Um, something perhaps of, of that Micah was even thinking. I'm not, I don't know. But you remember the story of Jezebel, that godless wife of King Ahab, who himself was a wicked king. She most definitely was an enemy of God's people. I mean, just a bold worshiper of Baal. I mean, in some ways, she is just the embodiment of, of idolatry. She's the embodiment of, of arrogance. And we might even say of Christian persecution. Well, this cursed woman, she finally met her end, quite literally, having been thrown down, trampled underfoot, and she became as dung on the face of the field. Their scripture gives us an illustration of what this is going to look like if you serve other gods and hurt His children. Well, as we move here, progress to these, these lyrics, uh, verses especially 11 through 15. In fact, just kind of as an aside, some have even said that, that this is like a hymn, like it's written in hymnody. But here, Micah is attempting to communicate a very great truth about who God is and that God is a provider. He is that Jehovah Jireh. That God's provision for His people defies explanation. Like you can't make this stuff up. And while this is true in, in so many ways, in so many times and circumstances, here in these verses, it somehow seems to be even more mysterious. And maybe that's just me, but as I looked at verses 11 through 13 specifically, these were some of the most difficult, especially in this chapter, they were very difficult for me to wrap my mind around. And I do believe that there are some quite literal fulfillments for these verses. But when I, when I shake all that down and, I, and I, I said, what is the core truth being presented here? What is the main thing? What's the big picture? Um, the thing that I was left with is that God's purposes will be accomplished because of His provision of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, you see there is there's demolition that's occurring all around. But inexplicably here, God's people are busy with construction. So there's this trampling down, there's this being splattered in the in the mud and the mire. We we talk about Uh, we've talked about in previous chapters about the fields being plowed and the cities being torn down. There's destruction all around. But here's God's people building. What? Yes. Inexplicable. God's providing walls to being built in the midst of a demolition zone. Verse 12, If there is a time of war and there's... Immigration, really? Yeah, in time of war, people don 't immigrate to that country. they flee. they're refugees. They leave in droves. but but here, people are flocking towards it. they're flocking to Jerusalem, to God 's people. In verse 13, we've got a couple different things. We've got the consequences of sin here. Um, Micah, he, he, refer, he returns to that, that fruit theme that he's had a couple times. Um, uh, uh, bearing fruit. And um, he says, essentially, look, be not deceived. God's not mocked here. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We see the earth reaping. The, the, the deadly result and the fruit of their sin, we see that cursed is the ground, literally, because of you. Cursed is the ground because of man. And then there's sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So sin has major consequences. We see that in 13. Also, we see, at least I do, the consequences of the resurrection. And here's where, that, where that question mark was in my mind uh, earlier when I said he's, he's sorrowing, but he, is he rejoicing too? That I think there's, there is the consequences of the resurrection because Christ is raised. He gives life to dead men who came from the ground. And even creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption and itself shall be made new. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe that's just me, but I see that perhaps there's even some rejoicing here by Micah in this. Verse 14, pictures for us the flock of God as being protected in the woods, yet... Yet there is just plenty of lush, beautiful green grasses. Usually the canopy keeps some of that down, but that's not the picture here. When it says Carmel there in 14, quite literally that means like a bountiful field. So I didn't do the the geographical historical context to see what Mount Carmel looks like, but... But quite literally, when it says Carmel, it means a bountiful field. So they're in the woods, protected, but they have plenty to eat. Where there shouldn't be plenty to eat, but there is. And just to help us understand God's provision, one more time, Micah gives us two more historical comparisons. They're in uh, 14 and in 15. He says, as in the days of old. Now, while Micah's not old enough to remember those, those glory days, those days of Solomon, um, and, the, and just the extreme abundance that was everywhere, the peace, the prosperity, he's not very far removed from them either. Uh, you know, perhaps his father or his grandfather told him some memories or, or stories that were related down to them uh, of just how... Amazing this was. Days in which dignitaries from all over the earth came to Solomon and were just flattened by not only who this great king was, how wise he was, how wise his servants were, but amazed at the wealth, amazed at the, the food. I mean, everything was just astounding. We can't even hardly imagine it. The, the wonder at the untold wealth here. And just so, I mean, silver was as plentiful as the rocks on the ground. He says, as in the days of old, this is how God's going to provide for you. More than you can possibly imagine or think. And then he says in 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. How's God going to provide for you? Here's the nation being born, as it were, coming out as slaves in the midst of a completely ruined and destroyed country. I mean, just utter destruction of Egypt happened with those plagues. And yet, they were miraculously preserved by God. While, while everyone around them was affected by plagues and by death and by insects and flies and frogs and, and everything, they were covered over. Judgment passed by them. She was shaded from the burning sun with a cloud by day, and she was warmed by a fire at night. You know, it gets cold in the desert. It drops like 50 degrees at night. And even though it's 90, it doesn't feel like 90. They were warmed. Bread fell from heaven. Water came out of nowhere. Out from the rocks. No man could have provided for a nation for 40 years in the wilderness. But God did. That's how God's going to provide for you. And when we consider God's provision for us in our lives, you know, it can and it, perhaps it probably will look different, but the same principles apply. Food will show up on your table and you'll have no idea how it got there. Money will come to your wallet and you're like, how did I get this? You don't have to worry about that, that flat tire, that broken engine... That, that fuel pump that fell out, because God's going to provide. If He's going to provide, He'll provide. We don't know how, but He does. He does. And when you or I, when we're looking to the future and we're asking, what will it be like? You know, we, most of the time we can't really see clearly just exactly how things are going to play out. But, but we do have an idea. We can see a form. We can recognize a shape. We can say, hey, that's that color. That, I remember that. That looks very familiar to this over here. Even though it's fuzzy, it's far off. And, and I think, but, but yet, quite often, even when we have a really good idea of what the future holds, oftentimes we don't like it. Why don't we like it? Well, it's either because we believe it means personal discomfort for me, or we don't like it because we really don't believe that God can do anything good out of a bad situation. Why? Why? Because we doubt God's person and we discredit His work. God says He'll provide. Do we actually believe Him? Do we believe Him? So what do we do? What do we do? Remember remember what it was like to be a child. You know, oftentimes when a child's afraid, they just need to be held. They just need to be, come here, sit in my lap. Let me hold you. Let me hug you. They need to be reassured that mommy's right here and daddy's going to protect you. Remember what it was like to be a child when you look to the future and you're scared. Have that childlike faith. Where do we go when we face the uncertainty of the future? Where do we go? We go to the past. We look behind us. We go to our Bible. We open up that map again and say... Where am I? Someone else has been down this path before me. What can they teach me? We go to the ancient records that tell us of God's work. They tell us of God's person. And this is precisely where Micah is leading us. It's it's as if he leads us in a verse of that that kid's song, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. What? There's nothing my God cannot do. Micah is leading us in that song. He's, he's not disconnected from his surroundings. And he's not naive. He's not ignoring the actions and the reactions of the enemies around him. Of, of the nations. But his focus isn't there. He's not focused on the chaos. He's looking through it. And he sees resolution. He sees peace. He sees security. Have you ever ever spoken with someone and they're talking to you, but they're just staring out into space? They're not looking at you. Their mouth's engaged in the conversation. and, And they aren't, they're not totally ignoring you but because they're answering your questions. But, but you think for a moment, like, is this person really even paying attention to me? Do they, do they actually care? Because their gaze is it's somewhere else. It's transfixed somewhere else. Well, I kind of think that's what Micah's doing here. His face is looking far, far off. Yeah, there's all this smoke and fire and fighting and bickering and crumbling going on around him. But he's looking through all that. And I think that as he's considering what shall be after all this destruction and mayhem, he's he's remembering what has been. He remembers the rod that perhaps his father used as he whacked that wayward sheep when it went off into the, into the briars instead of with the rest of the flock at the green pasture. He's remembering that correction. He sees his enemies almost in a very, in a very surreal fashion that, that while there, there isn't this gloating attitude, when he sees the enemies being trampled down, being defeated... There's a recognition that justice has been accomplished here. And before, before he just breaks out into praise, he says this in verse 17, and, and they, that they being the, the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, the enemy, if you will, they will be afraid before you before you. Now, he's speaking to his countrymen. He's speaking to his enemies. He's speaking to us. But his face is held captive by the glory and splendor of God here. They will be afraid before you. And that's what Micah sees as he looks off into the distance. He sees God himself. Micah knows that the nations, they know, he knows God's enemies will be in fear. How does he know that? Because he knows what it's like to or what happens to a man when he comes into the presence of the king. When he comes into the presence of the Almighty. Micah may not have had a throne room experience like Isaiah did. But he knows very in, in, in the gut, in the core of his being what happens when, this, when this, these stress hormones hit you. Your pulse starts beating faster. Your, na- your vision narrows. You can't hardly see peripherally. All you see is straight ahead. Your, your, your respirations increase because your heart rate's increased. You start breathing, inhaling and exhaling faster and faster. Your knees start getting wobbly. You lose fine motor skills. There's all this this stress that's going on and you have to focus really to keep your balance when you're walking or standing so you don't fall over. Suddenly, everything that you thought you would say, you can't. It's everything, it takes everything inside of you to just whisper. Because all of these hormones inside of you has sucked out the moisture from your lips and your tongues and your larynx is sore and you can barely speak. Why is it that no man can see God and live? If you take into account only this chemical aspect of the human body, <clears throat> we're not going to talk about the, the, the spiritual reality of sin and of holiness If we just talk about chemical makeup inside your body and its response to the stress stimulus, the overproduction of of human hormone and its effects upon the body, its effects upon the multiple organ systems within you, it's going to suck out every ounce of energy inside of you, forcing you into unconsciousness. And that's not all, though. When this stimulus, this external stimulus is fear guess what, there's a sudden increase of adrenaline that spikes into your brain, into your heart, and you have a cardiac arrest and you die. That's quite literally, you are scared to death. And so in, uh, Micah says, they will come before you in fear and trembling. So how can verse 16 and 17 be understood if they... Die? How can they come to him in dread, in fear, in trembling? How can they come to him and still live? How can sinful man stand before a holy God veiled in flesh? The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. They come before a veiled Almighty. They come before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to the King of kings and the Lord of lords to which all men must come. They must come. All men will stand before the judgment throne. And no man can come to the Father but by me. We're going to go one by one to this King of kings. And it's to the King whom God has installed that men will come, and every knee shall bow, every t- knee shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, take warning, O kings, take warning. Worship the Lord in reverence, worship Him, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, that He be not angry with you and you perish in the way, for His wrath will soon be kindled. If you will not humbly come, if you will not willingly come, you will, like the serpent, be forcibly humbled and come. But, Micah ends this way, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And that's precisely his conclusion. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, despite this distant stare-off into the future, despite his, quote-unquote, seeing of the future, Micah's greatest wonder is not at the devastation of his country. It's not at the subjugation of his seemingly all-powerful enemies. No, it's not even at the glories of the world to come. That's not his greatest wonder. His greatest wonder, Micah is awestruck with the amazing grace of God that would pardon his sin. That's what has Micah transfixed. He wonders at God's grace towards himself. For this question, who is a God like you? That's a play on his own name. It's a play on his own name. And Micah asks, God, the earth is so filled with with so much sin, that even your people, even I am an iniquitous rebel. How could you possibly forgive me? How could you possibly forgive me? How can you forgive my family? Who are you? Who are you, Lord? Well, here in the final paragraph, Micah's greatest intrigue and wonder is in regards to the mercy of God. Not as justice or his judgment. He gets that. He can comprehend that. He's been preaching about it for seven chapters. No, but it's on his grace. Micah's doctrine hasn't changed. His 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 zeal hasn't changed. But maybe his perspective, maybe his emphasis has changed a little bit. He's matured, physically older. He's matured um, intellectually. Maybe he's matured some passionately even. But more than this, he is matured in his understanding of the person of God. He's matured in his understanding of how God works. So who is a God like you? Who is God? What what has he done? Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity? Well, he's creator. He's life giver. He's a sustainer. Who's God? He's attorney. He's judge. He's executioner. Who's God? He's a planner. He's a builder. He's a host. Come in, drink, eat. He's a father. He's son. He's Holy Ghost. He's Shepherd. He's a waiter. Would you like a refill? He's a snake killer. He's a forgiver. He's lover. He's truth. He's author. He's eternal. He is the Word. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He is friend. He is the Lord Jesus Christ born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life in our stead, was unjustly convicted, tried, hung upon a cross, died, buried, and rose again, and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's who this God is. The Journal of Micah it's a story of sin. It's a story of judgment, of, of redemption, of restoration. It's an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it's been ups and downs. And throughout its pages, there are, as it were, there's sweat stains here. There's teardrops. There's, there's wrinkled and torn pages. There's these ink blots. There's these not quite completely erased Pencil lines. There's the brown oily finger smudges. It's even some dried blood is sprinkled here. Now this book, as we saw, it had an apocalyptic opening. The Lord's coming. the The mountains are quaking. They're being melted with fire. It's a warning that the end of days is coming. That the Lord's coming with a sword but this book has a gospel closing. It's an unbelievable promise that the end of sin is coming, that Christ is coming, and He's coming with a smile. He's coming for a bride. Perhaps even as Micah lay on his deathbed and he closed his eyes for the last time, perhaps he was meditating on these hope-filled words here. These words for dying men. These words for waiting men. These words in the journal of God. I'll read a little medley here from Micah and then over in Isaiah. And we'll close. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Even so, come Lord Jesus.